This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There, you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Hello and welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is episode 12. My guest today is Bob Griffin. Bob is the Senior Education Research Fellow with the Alaska Policy Forum, and today we are going to be discussing education in Alaska. Great to have you on, Bob. Hey, nice to be here, Casey. All right, before we get started, what I'm going to do is just talk a little bit about the maybe the theory of education or the type of questions that we can answer. So when I was thinking about education, I'm thinking about the history of public education, and that's the main thing that we're going to be discussing I don't think we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the way that we should structure private schools or any of the other institutions where children can be getting education. And the other thing is we may touch on university education. That's part of our education system, but we're primarily going to be talking about K-12 through education. Absolutely, yeah. I can uh, I can uh, jump around a lot of subjects on K-12 education for the last 11 years, the Alaska Policy Forum, that's been uh, pretty much my primary focus. So if you go if you go back in time, back colony days, 1600s, we started to see a recognition of the need for public education. And there were some policies, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, where communities of over 50 people or 100 people we're required to hire schoolmasters, etc. So there's a long tradition of it. If you get to the Alaska Constitution, we have public education as a as something that the state will provide. So some some will argue whether or not public ed- education whether we should or shouldn't, but that's really a, a non-starter because legally through the Constitution, through society, that's what we've decided to do. So when you break down education, you really have three pieces as far as I can tell. You have your inputs for education, your outputs for education, and then you have the general climate or the societal factors that go into education. So what I'm talking about there is for education, for our inputs, we can basically spend money on our facilities, making sure that the environment is good for students to learn. We could spend money on the curriculum, uh, updating the textbooks, updating the way that it's delivered, Delivery methods such as being on the computer, Apple products, or some other products, or through traditional uh, textbooks, or we can just spend money on it, and I won't break it down to a million different pieces, but when I say spending money on it, I mean spending money on administration, teachers, classroom size, etc. The societal factors are going to be how uh, how much income does that community that attends that school, how much income do they have, what's their minority status, are their parents primarily married, primarily not married, etc. And then our outputs are going to be where most of the people disagree. And I'll take a pause for a second to see if you're, if you're following me on that and whether or not you're, you're agreeing so far if you have different something different to say on it. 
No, I, I, I'd absolutely agree. And uh, uh, public education uh, wasn't widespread in the United States, you know, even though it started in the 1600s until about 1840s. And uh, Horace Mann was the only thing that I'll jump in on that. And public education, the way it's organized, as we know right now, pretty much started in the 1840s. And the Horace Mann model that was that was modeled by Horace Mann from uh, the the model from uh, Prussia back in that time. When when Horace Mann was jump was was pushing for education for public education, he had a primarily what he would say. Um, if anybody goes back, if you want to read anything that Horace Mann wrote, and I think he was in Michigan, maybe, uh, but he was a state legislator somewhere. I, I can't remember exactly where he was a legislator at but my memory of Horstman, he basically said look you can't have a republic you can't have a democracy you can't have a, a normal social society if you're not educating people so his main output was saying look we need to we need to have the institution of education and that's that's one of the things on the outputs when i when i think about three outputs possible one of them is the institution I went to school, you went to school, your parents went to school, everybody's gone to school, we understand how the teachers work, we understand what the requirements are, and we want to have the output of, of children by the time they reach the 12th grade that we are all somewhat the same in the way that we view the world or the way that we fit into the corporate work structure. We know how to attend school from 8 to 3, we know how to show up five days a week, and we know basically how to follow the rules. And I think that's what Horace Mann kind of wanted out of education. And I won't disagree with you on that, Casey. That seems to be the main objective that, you know, that in a system, again, that we modeled after, after uh, the Prussian model in, in Europe at the time to uh, create competent cap, uh, factory workers and, and soldiers and other members of, that could contribute to society. Well, and then... On the, the second piece of that, you, so you had mentioned the factory workers, but as you, you move forward in American history and you get into Industrial Revolution, the progressive education reform era, like 1870, 1920, we started to see, hey, if we teach a certain amount of things, we have a certain curriculum that economically we can have workers that come out that are more efficient, produce more, and are ready for jobs in, the, in that economy. And so we can either have institutional, the institution of education where we're all, we view education as, as it's going to help our society. And then secondly, it would be human capital. We're making an investment into K-12 through children because the product, the children, are going to be more efficient in the workplace, increase GDP, increase prosperity, increase business revenue, etc. And that is going to be one of the other options on the output so we have institution we have the investment in human capital and the third one would be education is just a good in and of itself so if you educate somebody they're going to make more money over the long run they're going to pull themselves out of poverty they're going to avoid crime etc that one is a little bit more problematic to me yeah i think uh, education is definitely that big equalizer um that People who are poorly educated have very little um, economic mobility, uh, but a well-educated person will have quite a bit of economic mobility. So, yeah, no, I think some of our, our woes that we have today, the discussions on income inequality are, are well-rooted in, in our uh, education system, uh, not producing 
uh, outcomes for uh, some some uh, target groups. That's for sure. Yeah, we do we do look at education when we're looking at it as a good in and of itself, and we say, okay, if we can just get children K through twelve education, if we can just get them to know X, Y, or Z, then they'll be able to pull themselves out of out of uh, poverty. I always go back to Wealth of Nations when I'm thinking about some of these things, and and this might be a little bit too smoke-filled room, you know, philosophy here, but Adam Smith was writing, okay, there's one guy who walks to work and one guy who takes a carriage at the time, horse-drawn carriage today, we could call it the automobile, and some people would say that one person walks because he's poor and one person walks, or one person's poor because he walks and one person's rich because he takes a carriage and and that was and uh, many people think think that take that position but he makes the argument that no one person walks because he's poor and one person takes the carriage because he's rich and and that's a big distinction and um that's something that we can address a little bit later but now that we we've got the the framework where are we at with alaska's education right now looking more broadly at the numbers Number of students that we have, how much money we're spending on education generally, knowing that education is something that we're required to provide, and then we'll start getting to the outputs. But right now, just the inputs of how many people that we're educating, how much we're spending, et cetera. Well, generally, uh, I think the student population in K-12 student population in Alaska is about 128,000. That's been declining slightly over the last few years. And if you look at all the all-in cost of K-12 education, uh, right to the cost of facilities and re- retirement and pension systems, healthcare costs, all-in costs. We're spending a little over two billion dollars uh, a year in the state of Alaska and in, in, on uh, K-12 education. The, the last figures that I've seen from NEA rankings and estimates, which is an ex- excellent uh, publication that benchmarks states uh, against one another. That put us at at, uh, the uh, second highest spending per student in average daily attendance, uh, right behind uh, New York, at at, uh, roughly uh, $23,000 a year per student, uh, which is um, a pretty substantial increase from what it was, uh, well, say, 16 years ago, when uh, that's as far back as the NEA ranking investments figures go. It was uh, about, uh, oh, about eleven twelve thousand dollars per student so the people of Alaska have invested pretty heavily in k-12 education over the years despite the narrative that we've been you know starving with it to death I think um, when you index it against the NEA rankings and estimates over the years we've had the third highest percentage increase in k-12 uh, spending per student and average daily attendance in the United States over the last 16 years when you say Average daily attendance, how do we measure, are we looking at how many students are in school every day, uh, or is it time-bound, or how do we measure that? And that's that's a good point that you bring up, I, and I use that figure specifically, average daily attendance, because it reflects how many kids are actually in the schools on a daily basis uh, compared to enrollment. Uh, and that's another big, big issue, big, big problem we have in Alaska is that we have the second highest chronic absenteeism rate in, in the United States. About uh, to, to be labeled chronically absent, you have to miss uh, more than 15 days of school a year. That 
the case for about 24% of Alaska's students are chronically absent. Uh, Washington State is the only state that has a higher chronic yet, uh, absenteeism rate, uh, and they're, they're only slightly above us, about 24.5%. Uh, so when you think about it, that's a, an amazing number. It's about 100 hours of, of instruction lost for a quarter of our kids. And that's, that's the, the minimum the amount to, to be considered chronically absent. We have a lot of anecdotal information of kids only uh, attending as few as 50 out of 180 days of school a year in, in uh, some of our districts across the state. You know, it would be a, an interesting, and maybe you know this, but an interesting statistic would be whether or not students, specific students that are chronically absent, perform worse than students that are there or are regularly attending or attend at higher rates. Because it could be, potentially, one answer would could be that some of the students that are chronically absent are don't need the same hours of instruction to learn the same thing. And that is an excellent point you bring up there, Casey. I'm not I'm not particularly a big seat time kind of guy. I'm I'm more of a mastery based model. I'm a promoter of mastery based education models um, and uh, allowing. And there's a quite a few of those out there. Not really none in Alaska yet because uh, the the uh, the structure of, of our system really doesn't accommodate uh, mastery based uh, model learning systems, but you know, sitting a bunch of kids in, in a classroom for a particular amount of time shouldn't be the objective. They should, the objective should be uh, them to be able to demonstrate the knowledge that you want them to demonstrate, regardless of the, the amount of time that it takes. The mastery-based model you're talking about, all right, right now we're advanced. We advance students right now if they score 60%. They get 60% of of their work right, they're going to advance. I think that we advance everybody no matter what anyways, but we're asking students to get just slightly over 50% of, of their work done correctly. That's, that's, that's correct. And in, in, in a, a mastery based model system, you, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be any grades. There isn't any grades in the system that use mastery based uh, models. Essentially you uh, work in, in units, uh, uh, small units of, of work and achieve mastery in those modules. And when you've achieved mastery in that module, and, and essentially achieving to what we would consider an A level, then you move on to the, the next model. In the the, the, the the more common Horace Mann model that we have, if you get a, a 60%, then you pass. But what's the 40% you didn't know? That, that will usually come back to bite you later on uh, as a student, because especially in things like... Uh, math and sciences, the, the things that you learn earlier uh, are building blocks that, that depend upon the things that you're going to uh, learn later. And so if you if you have big holes missing in your learning wall, we'll call it, uh, big uh, gaps and, and bricks missing, uh, the, the wall is going to be pretty unsteady and, and collapse eventually as, as you reach you know, your, the, the maximum level you can achieve because you just have too many concepts that are missing along the way. And in uh, mastery-based models, uh, students achieve at their own natural rate and move it uh, regardless of their um, chronological cohort. I think that that would be a little bit um, that would be a little bit radical as far as it, it may be a great change for the students. It would be a radical change to the way that education is delivered, and that's one of the that's one of the hurdles that we have. So right now in Alaska, I know that we and this is nationwide too, but 
focusing on Alaska. Education is something that I went through, your parents went through, your uncle went through, your aunt went through, etc. And so everybody has some some bit of an opinion and everybody wants to change how we do it and generally that's because we want better outcomes. So the mastery based model that would be a, a relatively radical change to the way that it's delivered and it would upend some of the education system. So there will be some pushback and there's ways that you can find that the mastery based model would leave some students behind and etc. But um, the the takeaway from from that is we we can test how our outcomes are going. So right now we're testing to the 60%. We don't have mastery based probably won't have anything mastery-based in a while, but where are our test scores relative to uh, where we used to be? And by used to be, let's just, you know, maybe 20 years or however long, and then compared to some of the other states. Well, the the best measurement we have for apples-to-apples comparison between uh, Alaska and other places, the National Assessment of Education Progress that's conducted by the U.S. Department of Education every odd year, and um, in the, the 2019 uh, uh, stats that just came out uh, this November, uh, Alaska is pretty close to the bottom in every one of the categories that they measured. The four big categories they measure, measure are fourth grade reading, fourth grade math, eighth grade reading, eighth grade math. And I always break those down by economic status um, for kids who qualify or don't qualify for free or reduced lunch because um, when you compare them directly without breaking them down by economic status, there's there's states that have very, very high poverty rates and various states with very, very low poverty rates and to kind of normalize those. But uh, so bro- broken down by economic status in those four categories leaves us with eight categories. And Alaska in 2019 was um, arranged between 45th and 51st in every one of those uh, categories. Uh, we were dead last specifically in uh, fourth grade reading for kids who qualify for free or reduced lunch and the, the, also the upper and middle income kids who don't qualify for free or reduced lunch. In reading in eighth grade, uh, we were uh, second to last and uh, for low-income uh, kids and for upper and middle incomes, we were third to last in, in reading. So uh, our, our scores across the board are pretty um are pretty dismal uh, right now. When you go back to 2003, was was the earliest that the, the National Assessment of Education Progress was universal across all 50 states and, and the District of Columbia. And in, in that year, uh, we still weren't great, but we were scoring as, as high as 29th in, in uh, like uh, eighth grade math for kids who qualify for free or reduced lunch. We were 29th in, in the nation. That was kind of our apex, but we. Uh, and we were pretty close to the bottom in, in reading uh, still back then. Uh, but we have fallen in standing in all eight categories uh, since uh, 2003, while uh, our, and our test scores, our scale scores have actually declined. We're one of the few states where our scale scores have declined, where most other states have, have seen uh, increases, in some of them very substantial increases. The first thing that, that somebody is going to say, I think, when they look at the numbers, is well maybe the maybe the standardized testing that we're doing is flawed. Maybe it's not. Maybe it, maybe it's not Alaska. Maybe it, it's the method of the test. 
Has the, has the test changed, or, or is that a, a common complaint up here? The test, the test has been pretty solidly the, the same, and the and of course the the, the NAEP, we'll call it the, the National Assessment of Education Progress is is some, not a test that anybody uh, really prepares for because it's a uh, a large statistical sample of kids that are sampled from every district in the United States over uh, uh, every every other year. So um, it's not something you would you would you know try and teach the test to kids uh, about because the you, you frankly you, you have too many other things going on when uh, it uh, only about 10% of the kids are are actually tested but a, a test, 10% statistical sample is is a, is a very very reliable sample when compared to you know we have uh, political polling where they take a, a sample of a thousand people out of a million people and, and can come up with a, a margin of error of three or four percent. The margin of errors for these uh, uh, statistical samples for the NAEP is very, very small. Well, and if, if so, if somebody is, uh, if somebody has a problem with the standardized testing, this is just a general observation that I have that I want to, you know, I'll, I'll just interject myself on on this one, if there is a, if there's a standardized test, if you sit down a fourth grader or an eighth grader or a 12th grader and you pre- present them with a test and, and there is no way that you can structure the test, no possible way for uh, educators or that test creators to structure the test to pull out that information from the student, then the student didn't learn it. Um, you, you can say that somebody's a bad test taker. I've never been a fan of that. I've never agreed with that. Because what happens is maybe you could answer 3x minus 1 equals, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden you get a test and they say, okay, 2x minus 1 equals whatever. And it looks exactly like what you've seen. You've seen it a million times in the classroom on the board and you know the answer. But if you're presented it, presented to you outside of the classroom in a word problem format you don't know how to apply what you're learning and so the tests regardless of of what you want to think about the test the standardized test that is that's a measure and you have to be able to pull the information out of the student and so i think that the standardized tests have to be somewhat accurate that's just that's my opinion Yeah, and i would say that that and I, I, I think you're probably right there. And I think it's widely acknowledged that the NAEP is a high quality uh, measurement that the, the U.S. Department of Education has is, is, is thrown a ton of research into making it a high quality uh, measurement. And I just want to get out in front of it and say that, that uh, um, this is pretty much the same across the, the nation. But I'll, I'll make the assumption, and I always do every day, that that our kids are just as bright, our, our teachers are just as dedicated, and our parents love their kids just as much as anywhere else. So when we start saying, well, it's our, our kids uh, don't take standardized tests uh, very well, I don't think that's a something that's unique to Alaska in any way. Uh, it, and um, I'm very skeptical when people start you know, going down those, those rabbit holes because I, I strongly believe our kids are just as bright as kids anywhere else. Uh, we've failed them in, in many other ways. The adults, mostly in the system, have, have failed our, our kids uh, for the dismal results that, that they've been getting. And it's, uh, uh, I think that's the, the, the primary focus and public policy changes that we need to make to um, bring our test scores up. So we've got the 
you've talked about free and reduced lunch, different economic classes, fourth grade, eighth grade. We're down 45th or below in all of those. We've already touched on ed- education spending per student has nearly doubled over the time mentioned. So what other spending could, could we possibly do? So our, our facilities that we spend money on, uh, maybe our facilities are outdated. They're not, they're not, um, they're not set up for students to learn. Perhaps that's something that's another input that we could address. Do they measure any of that or? Well, I don't have as, as hard data on that, but I do serve on the capital improvement committee for the Anchorage uh, school district. So I followed the subject uh, pretty closely. And I would say, um, we, we spend probably more on buildings and, and bureaucracies, um, but, you know, of that uh, great increase in first student spending on K-12 education, I would say not a, very much of that has actually made it down to the, the classroom level uh, because we spend a huge amount of money on, on building and maintaining uh, facilities. Uh, and uh, that with very little indication that those have improved uh, student outcomes. And just anecdotally, uh, uh, Anchorage School District, uh, we're down about 4,000 students, uh, four or 5,000 students from our peak back in the 2002 or 2003-2004 uh, school year, but we've added over a million square feet of new floor space uh, during that same time frame, uh, which is very, very expensive to maintain, you know, the way the public sector operate, operates and those, those types of things. And the, and the facilities we, we build are, are extremely expensive. Uh, the, the building uh, portions actually rob resources from classroom operations and don't allow us to compensate uh, teachers at the, the levels that, that would that would attract the, the, the best talent around. When we're spending money on a base student allocation, now this is... So if our students drop by 4,000, it seems like budgets would have to drop across the board, which would curtail some of that spending. I don't know if you can speak to this one particularly, but isn't there a, some sort of stabilizer in our base student allocation? So if your enrollment drops, it's not like your resources drop immediately. That's right. There's a hold harmless um, uh, clause in the, the spending when you – when you see declines in enrollment, the the, the declines in funding uh, lag behind that, and, uh, and that's it's, uh, partially to recognize that there's fixed costs and, and variable costs of, of educating uh, kids. Um, the last data I've seen for Alaska is about 60% of our costs are are variable costs, and about 40% are fixed costs, and the fixed cost being the, the cost of uh, the, the heat, the light, the bond, uh, uh, paying for the bonds uh, for uh, schools, and the variable cost being for every 25 kids you need a classroom teacher, for every 25 classroom teachers you need a payroll clerk or, or some such thing. You know, the, the, the variable cost that work, uh, uh, that's based upon the, the, the student enrollment. Under Dunleavy now, I mean, we've, we've consistently tried to address our, our education to have better outcomes. So we are, we've been going through the Alaska reads act and you've, you've got a a piece that talks about some of the, some of the myths that we have when we think about Alaska education, when we're looking for a solution. So the, one of the first things that people will say 
is, okay, so Alaska's got pretty poor test scores. Bottom 45, 45, 46, 51st. Some of that is due to uh, poor performance in smaller and rural communities pulling down the overall average. So we're actually doing just fine in the urban core. It's just some of our harder places to educate is changing our test scores. Yeah, and that's a common myth that gets uh, promoted. But actually, if you look at, at the, the peaks results, and, and the peaks uh, is the, the, the state test that we uh, give every year for every kid in Alaska. There's about a 90% participation rate statewide in the peaks testing. The three biggest districts, Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Matsu, are, are actually 19th, 20th, and 21st out of those 54 districts in their English language arts uh, proficiencies. Uh, rural school districts actually lead the, uh, the state in the highest proficiency for, for instance, uh, Skagway um, at, uh, has an 86% proficiency rate in English language arts, and Anchorage has a 42% uh, proficiency in English language arts, which is just slightly above the state average of, of 39%. It is true we do have very disappointing uh, uh, results in uh, uh, many parts of the state, especially uh, western Alaska and, and, uh, and the Arctic, um, that are substantially, uh, in some cases, uh, very substantially below. Um, uh, there's uh, four districts in particular that have about 5% or less of the students are, are proficient in English language arts. Uh, but it's not so much an urban, uh, uh, rural thing. Uh, some of those rural districts are really uh, keeping our, our test scores higher than they would show up uh, uh, without the rural districts. You've got a, a really interesting statistic on on uh, some of our some income. Uh, oftentimes, education outcomes are attributed to High poverty areas are going to have uh, poor in or poor education results. Higher income areas are going to have higher education results. Is that necessarily the case in Alaska? That hasn't been the case at all. Of course, you know uh, Alaska, despite our recent recession, uh, we're still uh, well below the national uh, poverty rate. Uh, the last uh, results I've seen were about ten point nine percent poverty rate, uh, with the national average at about. Uh, 13.4%. Uh, Mississippi, 19.9% uh, uh, poverty rate, you know, 81% higher than, than Alaska, it was third in the, in the nation in, in low-income fourth-grade reading uh, when Alaska was 51st. Uh, and that's something that uh, the, the folks in Mississippi turned around very quickly by adopting a, a statewide reading law that's very similar to the Alaska uh, Reads Act, and in a very short period of time, in six years, they went from 44th in the, the United States to uh, third in the United States in low-income fourth-grade reading, and uh, uh, something I think uh, a policy that uh, Alaska should uh, probably emulate. What is the what is this policy? How how are we how are we going to try to implement any of this? Because frequently, when we look at, at policies, and and I was um, I can remember when the millennial Millennium Development Goals 
came out. I mean, it was very big, UN wide, and and that's that's very large scale. But globally, hey, we're gonna by twenty twenty, we're going to have X, Y, and Z. Almost none of those have happened. Um, I think oftentimes we see all of these things. Anchorage wants to be the best place in the country to live, work, and play, and they're they're cliches. But I don't I don't see any of them making a big difference. So how are we going to address any of any of these systemic issues that we have right now? Well, specifically in the Alaska Reads uh, law is, or uh, legislation that's working its through its way through the uh, legislature uh, right now is. Uh, a portion of it is based upon uh, the, the Florida reading model, which Florida adopted back in uh, 2002. Uh, by 2009, uh, Florida went from 28th in low-income fourth grade reading to first in the nation, and they have been first in the nation since 2009 in uh, low-income fourth grade reading. And a variety of, of, of states have adopted uh, that uh, the, the Florida model and uh, have been like Mississippi and uh, other states have been very very successful in improving the, their their test scores and uh, raising the national average uh, all the way across. On uh, and if there's if there is a more important mission than early childhood literary for literacy for a uh, education system, I'm really not aware of it because learning to read certainly every other subject that you you learn uh, hinges upon your uh, ability to read. And uh, the Alaska Reads Act, again, based upon the Florida model, focuses on making sure uh, kids are able to read by the end of third grade. And it has a series of uh, 14 intervention steps uh, that include early identification of struggling readers as early as kindergarten and uh, first grade uh, parental notification and getting the parents uh, in the, the, the loop additional instruction and, and intervention with reading specialists are trained in the science of reading. You know, it's amazingly in, enough, that's one of the things we really lack is that our, our teachers really haven't been taught uh, the scientific uh, methods of, of, of teaching kids to, to read. They've kind of been left on their own. And subsequently, you know, while, while uh, uh, 34 other states have, uh, comprehensive reading policies. Alaska is one of the few states that hasn't had one, and uh, we've been, you know, falling farther behind over the years. When I'm when I'm hearing this, my initial reaction is that I think it's great that we want to have children that are literate by third grade. It's just very hard for me to wrap my head around that. That wasn't that hasn't been happening for 170 years. It's, it's very hard for me to see where there was a requ- where there is now a requirement that states address that we've taken kids that were educated in the K through 12 system, sent them through the university system, put PhD superintendents in charge of schools and that now from a legislature we have to address that um, maybe our kids should read by the time they're almost 10 years old. So I think that's my my first reaction. I'm not saying that it's bad to have the Alaska Reads Act or it isn't bad to have the Alaska Reed Act, Reads Act. It seems to me like something structurally outside of even that has to be going on if our schools are not are, are needing prompted to take these steps. So what sort of prompting are we looking at doing with the Alaska Reads Act that a school might be hesitant 
to accept? Because it seems like they would just, with open arms, say, yeah, of course, everything. Well, let me fall back a little bit of history, I think, that, that helped um, put us in this bad situation that we were in, is that we had a process. Um, uh, I also served on the State Board of Edu- Education, and our predecessors on the State Board of Education had this process years ago uh, of negotiating cut scores for what was proficient uh, in the, the state in, in, in reading scores. And um, the assumption was made that we're, oh, we're doing a pretty good job. So uh, whatever the 70th percentile is, that must be, you know, the, that must be proficient in our, in our test scores. And that's how we're going to validate our test scores and, and establish uh, the, the cut scores. Uh, subsequently, o- over the years, um, as the cut scores con- con- continue to erode, as, as we said, well, uh, 70% of our, our, our kids are proficient, uh, we ended up in a situation where we had the, the second lowest standards in the, in the United States. And I think because uh, we lulled ourselves into the sense of security that 70% of our, our kids are proficient, we can start focusing on other things. We really don't need to focus on uh, reading and early childhood literacy because we're doing just fine. Uh, when we started benchmarking ourselves here recently against uh, national standards and uh, when we um, ad- adopted the, the, the PEAKS testing um, that was uh, more norm to national standards, we discovered that no, uh, 70% of our kids are not proficient. It's it's more like uh, 39%. And, and actually, in my assessment, that's probably a little bit optimistic because if you look at the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Education assessment of, I think, about 26% of our kids are, are reading at uh, grade level in, in fourth grade. And so, yeah, that's that, that's been a big paradigm uh, shift and a change. And because of that, I think uh, things like the Alaska Reads Act, we have a, a lot more attention uh, statewide and early childhood literacy and uh, we're going to be moving things in the right direction. Whether the Alaska Reads Act turns out to be a you know a strong uh, law like in Mississippi, or maybe a weaker one like they have in Washington State, um, uh, will dramatically impact on on uh, the results down the line. A benefit to some of the changes is if you if you make a a change to the way that you're addressing education uh, within three or four years, you should know whether or not it made the difference. Um, it, it's not like you need a long-term, uh, you know, this is going to take until 2030 uh, to see this because you have a completely new population of students within four years um, that have that have uh, been educated under a new system. And so we should know and relatively soon. That, and we should, and that's historically... That's what we've seen in, in the states that have adopted uh, the Florida reading model. They've seen a substantial uh, increase within the first three NAEP cycles or six years after uh, adopting their, their uh, reading laws. Uh, they usually, they've seen uh, the dramatic increases usually come in, uh, in the first six years. Now, the teachers that we have, as, are, are the, for the Alaska Reading Act, is this relatively widely supported? widely supported by uh, teachers, et cetera. Um, is, is, do they have a complaint with some of it that, that you've seen, or is the Alaska Reads Act more of a broad stroke? It's not really contentious for anybody. It, the, of the, the 14 intervention steps, 
uh, none of them are really very contentious with the exception of the, the which something that was brought back by uh, Florida that the common wisdom prior to Florida starting their reading model in 2002 is that uh, students should be socially promoted, um, always be socially promoted, because if you don't socially promote them, then that, the, the damage to their self-esteem uh, will create negative effects uh, on down the line. Uh, one, of the, one of the elements of the Florida policy is that uh, that children who could not read at a basic level on a uh, above a, a one level on a, a scale of one to four, they couldn't read above a one level, and they uh, weren't an English language learner and didn't have a learning disability. There, essentially, there was no scientific reason why they shouldn't be reading. Were uh, retained in third grade and uh, weren't socially promoted uh, for that reading skill. Now that's um, a pretty important benchmark right there because, uh, again, our education system, the way it's organized right now, is you learn to read in kindergarten through third grade and you read to learn in fourth grade uh, later on. And there's a lot of brain development uh, science, too, that, that indicates there's a neuroplasticity window that's rapidly closing of around age nine and ten. And skills like learning to read really need to be accomplished uh, during that neuroplasticity window before it starts to close. So. Um, that part of the policy is very, very controversial because the, the large quantity of our educators have been educated with this this system that was uh, started uh, essentially mostly by a, a Stanford University professor, Linda, Linda Darling Hammond, who started writing textbooks you know, 20, 30 years ago uh, that, uh, that extolled the, the virtues of, of supporting kids' self-esteem over, uh, overall, you know, compared to the education system I was raised in where you earn self-esteem through achievement. Um, the uh, Linda Darling-Hammond model is you, uh, you need self-esteem to achieve. Um, so uh, Florida was kind of turned the education industry on its head by uh, starting to retain kids again because it was generally accepted that you would socially promote uh, kids. And... I somewhat uh, agree with that policy that we should kids should be promoted with uh, the great exception of, of reading again for the neuroplasticity window and and just because history and experience has shown us that the kids who are not at least minimally proficient readers by the end of third grade never catch up with their their cohorts and are much more likely to uh, end up uh, in lives of, of uh, low income jobs on public assistance or getting tangled up in the uh, in the um, uh, judicial system somehow pretty easy for me to agree with the with the reading so uh, what you're saying here is let's put let's put a, a barrier at third grade you can call it a barrier or a hurdle or whatever you want but let's put this at third grade this is going to be our, our check. For, for performance-based promotion well I, I think is the it's for, that, that third grade reading should be have a performance-based promotion uh, standard that we're not doing any kids any favors when we socially promote them uh, when they're they're not literate. Well, and there's there's also evidence of this in some some other areas. So, um, if you take if you take a third two third grade kids, okay, and some of this again, I'm going to go in into the world of the ver of the very smoke filled philosophy you know, making smoke circles room here. But if you get two kids that are in third grade and you uh, 
out of social promotion, you put both of them forward and one of them is less proficient than the other. Um, the, the effects of that are multiplied each year as one student becomes further and further ahead and the other student is further and further behind. Some of this can be, you can look at other analogies such as sports. Now, these are, these are pretty, pretty good, um, experiments that have been run and tests that have been run by the likes of a Malcolm Gladwell or etc. But when you look at youth sports, youth athletics, generally, not all across the board, but generally, somebody who is older in their class, they're going to be more developed. So when you're looking at first or second grade basketball teams is one of the examples or hockey teams is one that uh, Malcolm Gladwell uses. When you look at these uh, these participants, the older students in the first and second grade are more developed, and so they tend to get more playing time, tend to end up on the traveling team, and over the long run, they end up being the better athletes because they get so much time and so much repetition. Um, now, that's not across the board, but this that can be the same thing with third grade reading. Um, you hold somebody back that may hurt their self-esteem in the short run. Over the long run, if they are keeping up with their peers, they can perform better. Same thing can happen at a university. If you are a 90% student and you are pretty good, you're a 27 type of ACT, a 28 type of ACT, and you go to a good, large public university, well-respected, you may uh, get more direct attention from professors, etc., because you're not competing or or you're better in your class. If you take the same student that probably shouldn't be in Harvard and put them in Harvard, they fall behind their peers, don't perform as well. That is, I think that's generally speaking what uh, we're talking about with these reading levels, what it does over the long run when you socially promote at that third grade reading level, or is that way off? No, I think you're uh, right in the ballpark there. It's uh, it's such a, a, a critical element. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different uh, people that have, have talked about the concept too you, that you talked about. I think in the, the book Outliers, uh, they, they talk about, oh, the vast majority of NHL players are were born in between January, or January February, and March, uh, which seems really statistically unlikely to, to happen, but it's uh, as you mentioned, they were uh, the biggest kids when they were in peewee hockey, and when they uh, they were the ones that were on the travel teams and got the most ice time, and and uh, because they're twenty percent bigger than and, and stronger than uh, than the the other five year olds that that uh, started you know, you know uh, hockey that were that were barely uh, old enough to qualify. So yeah, uh, and that's. Kind of a strong element of, of the Alaska Reads Act that that uh, that is uh, unique to Alaska and an innovative policy is that uh, we've written into the law that uh, children starting kindergarten um, the the eligibility birth date for starting kindergarten is going to be June first instead of September first uh, because we have about sixty percent of our kids show up for kindergarten not kindergarten ready and by push, pushing that the 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 uh, youngest three months of kids uh, back for the eligibility date, uh, unless they're 
and there's an exemption there. If parents have a kid that's born in the, the summer that can that can be screened and demonstrate their kindergarten ready. They can still start kindergarten. I think that'll have a, a dramatic Im- input on our outcomes down the down the line. The Alaska Reads Act. So here's the here's one of the the uh, policies that we have for education. Now there's some other things with our education that I think it I think it's important to uh, to address. So um, one of those that I want to touch on short just for a second is classroom size. I I find classroom size to be a very or I want to know if you when you've done any research in education seen anything why does classroom size keep coming up well uh, class size is important um, uh, much more important in K through third grade where uh, kids are learning to read and you need that individual attention there is some uh, very good research that backs that up but but the research also indicates past fourth grade it becomes less and less important that uh, actually high school classes with uh, with uh, 40 students uh, or more you know in some cases you know just like college classes you'll have large classes with a lot a lot of kids um it is the quality of the instructor uh Produces better uh, outcomes than uh, than the, the the class size because you're getting into situations where individual attention uh, attention is not as important as in those early the development areas. Now, a lot of people have pointed to um, Florida because Florida had a constitutional amendment that required class sizes be 18 or less in, in third grade uh, and below. Uh, but if you if you look at the actual statistics of the number of, of students per teacher uh, in Florida, it's uh, substantial. There's a, there's about 18 students per teacher in uh, the state of Florida, where there's only 15 students per teacher in the in the state of Alaska. So somehow, with more students per teacher, Florida has found a way to comply with their constitutional uh, amendment. But also, it looks like they're doing a much better job of deploying teachers uh, in classroom uh, positions where uh, than we may be doing here in Alaska. The reason that I brought that up was, that you, and you got to it with the quality of the quality of the instructor. So right now, right now, if you were to take, let's say, the bottom five percent of teachers and remove them, our classroom size would go up, but every student would be learning from a, presumably a a higher quality educator. So one of the things that we don't want to address that nobody wants to address is that not all teachers are created the same. Everybody, and this is kind of the same argument that people will make for everything. They'll make it in. And I, I was in the military, but everybody will say, well, all police officers are the same. All firemen are the same. All military personnel are the same. All teachers are the same. Those, those are public service positions of which we hold to a higher caliber than we will to a lawyer and so we i think that we frequently give a free pass to some of our teachers and so we say oh well they're they're a teacher and they're they're a very great public servant but some teachers are are underperforming and some teachers are just bad 
does Alaska do anything to make sure that teachers are performing well, or is there even any way that we can measure that? I know that the teachers union would absolutely hate to have teachers performance, but that same teachers union wouldn't give president Obama, former president Obama, a teacher certificate to teach civics in South high school. Right. Yeah. No, uh, it's, that's a, that's a big problem. I'm not, uh, I've been involved in this process for a long time and I'm not aware uh, that we have any uh, good metrics for measuring uh, the, the quality of teachers. There's a lot of states that have, uh, have created uh, measurements, uh, like they, they they measure test kids that a that a, a teacher takes on early in the year and uh, compares their scores to the end of the year, and they call that the kind of a value added assessment of teachers. We really don't have that uh, vehicle in uh, Alaska to identify who are the good teachers and bad teachers, but there's some pretty strong research that indicates that um, uh, a, a kid with that just has a bad luck and has a string of, say, three bad teachers in a row, regardless of their economic status and underlying uh, abilities, is likely to have pretty lousy outcomes uh, overall. And so, yeah, teacher quality makes a, a a huge difference, and yet we really don't have a vehicle for identifying teacher quality and pairing uh, the highest quality teachers with the, the kids with the with the greatest needs. And that circles back again to the the mastery based model systems. It's not that uh, that mastery based model systems are usually, you know, like a blended uh, learning model system. Also, that that uh, leverages a lot of technology, a lot of computer based instruction done on the the side. And we've seen models like uh, Carpe Diem or Rocket Ship um, that, that have been deployed in, in the lower 48 with uh, excellent, excellent results with student teacher ratios of 50 to 1 uh, or, or greater, uh, yet they're producing much better outcomes. And with the 50 to 1 student to teacher ratio, you can afford to uh, pay uh, gigantic salaries for those high quality educators. So the, the teacher. Uh, teacher certification, some of the hurdles to putting teachers in classrooms, that's one of the things that's going to uh, it's going to prevent some people from becoming teachers. But another, another topic would be we are using a model for delivering education that we have had for an extremely long time. And there is no doubt that education costs are going up because we now have better and more advanced computers in the classrooms. We have better and more advanced uh, technology in the classrooms. We have more technology that are given to students. A lot of times students are given laptops, they're given iPads, they're given etc. So there is a cost to education, but with all of the advances in technology, it seems strange to me that our delivery methods for education aren't changing more rapidly, especially in the K through 12 model. And some of that, that people, so one of the things is you have people that are going to say, well, we just need to have performance based teaching. And you just highlighted some of the difficulties of doing that. So there's, there's real structural problems with trying to find uh, teachers and pay them based on their performance. On, this, on the same token, if we were to structurally change the way that we deliver education, regardless of whether or not there's better outcomes, we also have the hurdle of addressing what we do with children age K through 12 
while their parents are, are at work. So there are other there are other factors out here. We can't just find the most efficient, best way and say that is exactly what we're going to pursue. No, you you make some some good points there, and uh, but I just want to chime in too that that uh, because of uh, education has been very labor intensive in the past, and has actually become much more labor intensive in the last thirty years. The the number of adults in K twelve education has grown. That are working in K twelve education has grown pretty dramatically in the last thirty years. Even though the the number of of kids hasn't that that we still stay so focused on this Horace Mann eighteen forties delivery model for uh, the the military analogy for another I'm again a retired military guy too on on top of the other things that I, I do that essentially our our K twelve education system in, in uh, military analogies, we're still practicing cavalry charges, you know, uh, the, when, you know, much better technology to uh, accomplish the same task, which much less labor intensive is available. Now, we can go back and we can look at, okay, maybe our education system needs to, to change and be delivered differently. But what you said, there was an interesting um, point that you had there number of people working in education even though students haven't gone up where are where are people working uh where are people coming into the school workforce i I believe i was looking at department of education i would have to find my exact statistics but department of education Mm -hmm. uh, alaska's department of education had a has a little quick snapshot i went back to 2010 that's what they had up on their website and it showed teachers dwindling uh, consistently since 2010 every year. I don't know if that's true for uh, all employment or just teachers or what. Well, and it's it's the variety of, of different people that are uh, uh, employed in the system. If, if you, well, take the Anchorage School District again. That uh, I was chairman of the Budget Advisory Commission for the Anchorage School District uh, and, and served two terms on that, that body for a while, so I'm pretty in, uh, you know, pretty familiar with the Anchorage School District. Uh, there's been a lot of complaints recently of class sizes of uh, 30 or 40 more students and, and inappropriately large class sizes, 30, 35 kids in, in a K-3 environments. Um, most people would be surprised to, to know there's actually only eight students per, back, per, per staff member in, in the Anchorage School District. And so there's a lot more um, non-teaching positions than there are actually teaching positions in the uh, in the uh, the district, and that would be again going back to the military model where you, you know you have a an army, uh, but you you only have a few soldiers, and everybody else is is uh, uh, working in the rear area. You know, it's uh, historically, you know the Education has been very labor intensive, but it's been mostly classroom in, instruction. We've added uh, positions all up and down the chain through administration and other um, other tasks that are outside of uh, classroom teaching, especially over the last 30 years. I went through the Alaska Policy Forum, puts up a payroll of numerous different, I mean, primarily Anchorage School District, Municipality of Anchorage. You've got state state of Alaska, some some other entities. But one point that 
or, or one thing that I found that I want to see if maybe you've looked at it, maybe I'm looking at it wrong, but the Anchorage School District had over 34 substitute teachers that, that were making over $75,000 a year, and, and that doesn't include they were also receiving um, benefits. That seems, that seems pretty high to me. Yeah, it is. It does seem uh, uh, pretty high. A lot of those things are linked to collective bargaining agreements that that, that uh, we have in the district uh, as well. Though I think if you compare um, the uh, direct compensation uh, of educators in, in Alaska, uh, that it's not as high as other other public servants. You know, we've seen uh, enormous growth in Anchorage anyway in, in the uh, the, the cost of uh, public safety uh, workers, um, teachers. I I would never go out and say that teachers are particularly overcompensated uh, in Alaska. It's just that we have uh, actually robbed resources from being able to compensate teachers better uh, by adding uh, extra non-teaching positions that may not be as critical to uh, student outcomes. Or, or produce those those student outcomes that uh, a, a good classroom teacher, a good well compensated classroom teacher, uh, uh, would produce. Looking, looking at the the payroll information that you have, at Anchorage School District, you have a records management professional that's paid about twice what a eighth grade teacher is paid. Um, you've got the directors of professional development that are paid substantially higher. You've got the chief of nutrition, which is paid. Probably just, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but the chief of nutrition for the Anchorage School District paid probably just a little bit more than the mayor of Anchorage. Um, and you don't want to just say, superintendent, this is bad, but it's, it's worth noting that this isn't an Alaska problem. This is countrywide, but many, many, many of our superintendents are paid right on par with, with our secretaries of defense or our... Or, or, or our Secretary of State's. I mean, these are these are large, large uh, compensation that are going to administration, and less and less resources available to put teachers in the classroom or to retain and pay for better teachers. Right, and I think that, and from my perspective, the the biggest mistake we make, and again, as chair of the Budget Advisory Commission uh, for, for the school district for the Anchorage School District is is that there's way too many tasks that the school district takes on that would be better outsourced to the private sector um, uh, that could be done much more efficiently so that the core of the organization could focus on the primary mission of educating kids. You know, things from uh, janitorial work and snow removal and and, um, uh, uh, maintenance, uh, whatnot, uh, I, I think are all excellent candidates uh, for the, um, for outsourcing to the to the private sector again because it it becomes uh, a part of the management responsibilities of these superintendents uh, and everything to, to to manage this enormous employee group. It would be much easier if, if those uh, uh, tasks could be uh, uh, pushed off to a contractor and. and um, if the contractor performs poorly, then you get a different contractor, uh, uh, rather than the, uh, the having to, to manage this, this you know labor group like in, in the case of Anchorage School District of about 
six or seven thousand uh, em- employees, uh, where you only have about two thousand classroom teachers. Where are we at for for a a budget of the Anchorage School District? Just speaking of the Anchorage School District for now, what what what's an overall budget? Well, I, I haven't been on that committee for uh, a little while. Last time, uh, last time I served on the Budget Advisory Commission was uh, in 2015, and, and I think we were up to about $850 million a, a year in overall uh, the spending uh, for the Anchorage School District. And since then, the, that number has continued to increase slightly, despite the, the narrative that it's been, been going down, even though the number of students uh, have been declining. And on top of that, we have, um, of course, uh, out, figured out outside of that we, uh, and outside of the tax cap when we approve bonds uh, for uh, facilities and, and, and Anchorage, that also in, increases the, the uh, per student cost. If we started talking about bonds, I could talk to you about bonds for for another Three or four hours, I could talk to you about bonds and yeah. and, and how much how, how frustrated that that bonds can make me. And I think that the average person, I think that the average person looks and says, "Look, some of these things seem like like we should be just paying for these up front, and we could bond for for other things." And um, when you when you look at the common, just the common person looking, the consumer of education, when you look at ed- school systems with eight hundred million dollars in resources having to be told and informed that children should read by third grade. I think that it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's disheartening to the normal consumer. However, and this is again, across the board, when you look at the teachers unions, the way the educations are shut up and I'm not attacking a, a teacher union, uh, because it's, it's a, it's a good institution to, to work for benefits that teachers deserve etc but i'm but structural structurally um i think a lot of people start to believe that regardless of whatever change that we want to make to the education system in order to improve the outcomes no matter what anybody does it's not going to make a difference because there's there's a whole nother world of of education forces out there if i go out and say look i think that this would be better let's raise classroom sizes in the high school by five and save some costs and put more money into something. People are going to say that I'm anti-education. Well, and there is that concern and, and, uh, that, uh, uh probably I've, I've heard that a lot, a lot of criticism similar to that, uh, along the way, but I'm optimistic in that, you know, the, the, uh, or the, the places like, uh, Florida, and uh, Mississippi and Ohio and uh, Indiana that have um, had similar uh, situations in the in the past and have turned their systems uh, around gives me hope that we can do the same uh, type of thing uh, in Alaska and it's public public policy changes that have uh, made the the biggest difference. The uh, the teachers unions are important partners in, in uh, some of these uh, uh, processes. I I think they need to focus on on student outcomes and and on things that are more important to to, to students rather than what you know specifically the adults are looking for in the, in the conversation. 
but I have great hope uh, for the state of Alaska and, and that we can Im- improve things because we've seen other places uh, uh, make uh, incredible strides. You know, I keep on going back to Mississippi, uh, number three in the, in the country in, in low-income fourth-grade reading uh, when 85% of our kids are on free or reduced lunch. It's just a staggering statistic of improvement. And nobody, and I mean nobody, if if they're not looking at the numbers that you're looking at, if you say, hey, pick out a state where education outcomes have have seriously increased and it is a, a good model, very few people would say Mississippi is is where I want to look. However, the numbers your the numbers are saying that they've improved third in the nation. And we've also highlighted that the results of any changes that we make should should uh, we should be able to see those in three or four years. So we're moving forward with the Alaska Reads Act. There's some other changes that need to be done. Um, do you do you see a, another um, or any other changes that Alaska needs to implement in the very near term, or do you have another concern that that can be addressed in the next year or two, or that we're working on to change our outcomes from where we are, which is essentially last? I, I, uh, that's a good point. Uh, uh, high on my list, would, again, would be um, uh, re- refocusing. We have an opportunity here uh, to Alaska to lead the, the nation if we went out and we're bold like Florida was with their uh, reading initiative to lead the nation in mastery-based learning models to, to transition that that would be a, a, a great long-term goal. In the short term, uh, I think uh, after we uh, start to get uh, early childhood literacy wrangled in a lot, we need to work on our, our math scores, especially our ninth, uh, uh, ninth grade and, and uh, algebra uh, scores and bring those up. Uh, in uh, public policy things, probably the, one of the simplest things that we could do differently uh, to Im- improve outcomes right away uh, would be to change our funding model uh, to the California funding model. Uh, strangely enough, the uh, chronic absenteeism rate is, is almost uniquely a West Coast phenomenon. The, the, five, the four states with the highest chronic absenteeism are all touched the Pacific uh, Ocean uh, with the exception of California. There's more to do here. There's uh, more to do here. Yeah, much more to do there. But basically, uh, instead of funding their schools by a, an attendance period in October like we do, California funds their schools on daily attendance. And so the, the um, ab- chronic absenteeism rate in, in California is only 11% when it's 24.5% in, in Alaska, or 24% in Alaska. We've, we've got uh, a lot of things that we can do to incentivize students to to attend school. You know, one, one thing when I was in high school, my, my school district moved to a four day a week school week. I know that some people agree with that. Some people don't agree with that, but um, the way that the four day school week worked is if you had a C average in your classes, you got Friday off. If you're C or not C average, but a C in each class, if you were, if you were below a C, you had a mandatory in-service attendance. So number one, you get the incentive to do better in your classes. Um, kids that are going to perform the absolute best, they're not going to have to worry about it anyways, and they're getting a Friday off. Kids that are going to perform the absolute worst and that they do not ever intend 
to seek higher education. There's a large percentage of students like that. They just want Friday off, so they do better. And the kids in the middle that might be reaching for something, they end up showing up because they can't manage their their classes. They're getting below a C, and they get one-on-one instruction or very close to it on those Fridays to get them caught up. Those are the type of model, those are the type of innovations that I would like to see implemented in education for us to to take a little bit more uh, experimental approach to the way that we're doing education uh, rather than just sticking with the same model and saying we're going to make it better by nibbling around the edges. That's a, a great innovation, an example of what would be a great innovation, I think, K-12 education. I, I like that there, Casey. Yeah, it was it was something that I appreciated. Well, Bob, thank you, thank you for coming in and talking about education. It's one of the topics that um, I'd like to talk to you plenty about. Um, and Alaska Policy Forum touches on this all the time. I mean, is what it, it is not all that Alaska Policy Forum works on, but it is one of your primary key areas. If you were to say Alaska Policy Forum has a couple of areas, education would certainly be one of them, right? Well, it's an area that we have a lot of. We have some great need in Alaska, and we, the the board has been very focused on on trying to focus our energy where the greatest needs are for the state, and, and uh, it was it's pretty obvious that K twelve education rises uh, pretty close to the top there. K twelve education is something important for us to look into the outputs. We want our students to be to be better. Alaska Policy Forum does a lot to to. Uh, influence public policy on that. That is an area that will have a an effect on our students and our outcomes. I appreciate your time, Bob, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Casey. Bye-bye.